Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. And today we're discussing the important issue of inclusivity. We'll be busting the minority myth, discussing ways that brands can elevate experiences for hyper-diversifying audiences, and looking at connecting with Muslim women more authentically. Joining us is Nafisa Bakar, founder of Amalia, a media platform and brand consultancy focused on amplifying the voices of Muslim women. She's also CEO of Halal Gems, a halal food discovery platform. And her views on inclusion that centres Muslim experiences have featured in Wired, The Guardian, Campaign Live and Ad Age, among others. Also with us is our own Kate Johnson, Stylus's Senior Editor of Consumer Attitudes and Technology. Welcome to you both. So, Nafisa, could you tell us a little bit more about the work you do, in particular, what motivates you to do it and why you feel it's so necessary now? Thanks for having me. Um, so the reason why we do the work we do and my motivations are, I think a long t- for a long time, Muslim audiences have been ignored across the board or they've been misrepresented. So if you look at the media, um, Muslim audiences often, or Muslim individuals are often only pass the mic to speak about very particular topics. Um, and Amali is about creating a space for Muslims to exist on their own terms. Um, so our editorial is about being able to talk about everything from recipes to dating to politics to things to do on a Friday night. And then our brand consultancy is about increasing that reach of how we create meaningful moments that help our audiences feel seen um, and feel included. Kate, could you tell us a little bit about this idea of the minority myth as you've written about this as, as part of a wider trend set to impact future consumer culture? Sure thing. Um, I think we're seeing this shift in groups that might previously have been considered minority groups. So groups that have been underserved, uh, marginalised, overlooked, uh, actually swiftly becoming the majorities. Um, and we're seeing this happening because of demographic shifts, global migration uh, and intermarriage. Um, and this is transforming the West into a far more diverse place, really, ethnically, racially, culturally, religiously. Uh, so, for example, by 2035, the majority of people under the age of 40 in the US will be Hispanic, Black, Asian or multiracial. And we're seeing this even more so already among young consumers, among Gen Z consumers in the US. Already, they're the first generation in American history to have a majority of multicultural members. So you see that means that these young people who, let's say they're age um, 10 to 24, Gen Zers, they have diversity and inclusivity woven into their collective consciousness, um, sort of deeply embedded in their actual DNA. So, yeah, I think it's going to become a basic expectation and completely essential that brands play to the diversity of their audiences uh, going forward. So we talk a lot at Stylus and we've talked a lot on our podcasts about how brands um, can be can find it challenging to to market to young people full stop. Um, So when it comes to diverse audiences. Nafisa, perhaps you could discuss how you work with brands to, because I mean, it's, 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 it's a nuanced and complex kind of marketing that they have to do here. Mm. Um, I think what's interesting is that for ultimately what brands are looking to do is be relevant. And I think as we're looking at the demographic shifts and the data 
it shows that who they're trying to be relevant to is rapidly changing. So, for example, by 2050, Americans will no longer, white Americans will no longer constitute the nation's majority. And that tipping point is earlier for younger demographics like Gen Z. Um, and in terms of how they go about that, I think it's shifting a perspective from seeing minority groups as what's often seen as an aesthetic. And we see that in campaigns. We see every sort of neat box that's ticked and moving more to understanding as holistic lifestyles, as lived experiences, and also as identities that tick more than one box. Um, I think in particular with Muslim audiences, what's really interesting is Brands often are communicating to Muslim audiences, say, around the world, um, for example, say, in the Middle East. Um, but there's still a real lack of understanding about how the identity is rooted in places like the US and the UK and how they live in identities that are quite multi-layered and nuanced. Um, and that's not always understood correctly. And the lifestyles that they come with aren't always understood. So aside from working with you, obviously, and your, mm. your company, um, how can brands go about being more effective here? Because obviously, um, you know, one of, the, one of the ways that we talk about um, becoming a, a, a more diverse and, or a diverse, friendly brand when we talk about this as stylists is that, you, you know, you should be hiring diverse people and you should be working and collaborating with the sort of people you're speaking to. Is that, you know, is that one of the best ways or, or are there other better ways that you, th- you think you can do this? I I think um, hiring and diverse teams definitely is a part of that solution. Um, But I think as we all occupy more intersections in our lives, what the challenge becomes that you're constantly trying to have your internal team reflect wider society in the wider world. And that's not always possible, especially with how quickly we're shifting. I think that's where it gets really interesting um, with the takeover model and working with platforms um, and communities who inherently deeply understand these audiences and they're able to work with them collaboratively, either through editorial events, or even product development, joint collaborations to be able to put out experiences that are backed by authentic voice. And so it's not just um, based on the internal teams and development. It's actually going out and saying, do you know what? There are other communities, other platforms, other organisations who understand these communities. How do we bring them in um, and be able to work on that basis? I actually saw something yesterday, I think it was, that AARP, which um, is a non-profit body in the US that helps uh, people over the age of 50 uh, live their best lives, I suppose. (laughs) That's not the official descriptor, but um, supports uh, kind of helping, I guess, brands understand their true needs and Mm -hmm. values and motivations, etc., um, and they've partnered with Getty Images to bust stereotypes and imagery. Mm. So obviously that will help and have mm. that knock-on effect in imagery used in branding and marketing efforts. Um, and that's, I think, a great example of sort of going to the body that would understand and bringing mm. the right kind of curators to the table. Mm. Um, and I think we're also seeing this because, of course, diversity goes beyond just yeah. multicultural aspects. You've got age, you've got um, people with disabilities to consider. Mm. Um, so in the case of seniors or um, in the case of body, body di- different bodies, for example, body positivity, I think Getty did something similar, mm. um, Christian, that I know you've spoken about before. Yeah, it's happening quite a lot in terms so, of, of image search and search yeah. generally, which is, is uh, it needs to be diversified across the board. Um, so, Kate, 
you talk, I mean, you, as part of what your work at Stylus and the Consumer Attitudes uh, directory that you work on, um, you spend your days profiling consumer groups that are worth keeping an eye on. Indeed. So talk about, you know, why it's important for brands to understand and engage Muslim women effectively. What's your take on this? Well, I think as Nafis has pointed out, uh, Muslim women are not a minority group. They're not this, you know, mere niche that you should try and serve and target. Um, they represent a massive market and opportunity, and this is across all industries. So everything from food and fashion uh, to beauty and to travel. Uh, and, you know, by 2050, 30% of the world's population is going to be Muslim. So that's nearly a third. Um, and... As the globe's Muslim population multiplies and it's likely to grow, you know, the 70% by 2060, modest fashion is going to drive the luxury women's market, for example. Uh, and by 2021, demand for halal, which is anything permissible to use or engage in according to Islamic law, will grow into a $2 trillion global market. And this will appeal appealing to everyone from halal consumers at home uh, to the lucrative and growing Muslim travel market, for example. So I just think figures like these really do emphasize and indicate just how crucial it is to engage with Muslim women and Muslim um, the Muslim community in general effectively. Uh, or ultimately, I guess, risk obsolescence if you overlook or offend them. So now we're just going to take a break for a brief message about some interesting stuff from Stylus. On October 21st, we'll be unveiling the 30 trends set to define 2020's commercial landscape. Available exclusively to Stylus members, our hotly anticipated Look Ahead report series reveals not only what these trends look like in actionable detail, but also how your business can capitalize on them. And if you're a member, you'll also discover the influencers to watch out for in 2020 and our experts' take on how the world has changed in 2019. And if you're not yet a Stylus member, visit stylus.com slash lookahead to find out how you can access the 2020 Look Ahead reports. The Look Ahead 2020, available on stylus.com on October 21st. Welcome back. So you've both talked a little bit about sort of the data that, that, uh, around the kind of minority becoming the majority. But that's, I guess, it feels a little abstract. So what does, what does that actually mean in terms of how it'll affect culture? Because... Um, we, you know, we're seeing change. It seems to be quite slow change, but I'm assuming that this will accelerate. And at some point, the idea of mainstream culture and mainstream media will be quite different. What does that look like? I think there's an interesting question around who gets to define mainstream culture and what makes up that culture. So if we look at what mainstream culture is as a concept it's defined by ideas by attitudes and by activities that are shared by the majority and by most people and that, that that's regarded as the convention or the norm and so I think again going back to the stats and the demographics if you start thinking that if that majority is starting to change and if that majority is starting to be made up of lots of different nuanced groups, how does that then affect mainstream culture? So to think of something like um, Friends, right? Friends came out, I think, 1992 or 1994. Um, and if Friends came out today, say, as like a Netflix original, would it be considered good? Would it be considered mainstream? Probably not, right? Because it's be, it's contending with uh, shows like Top Boy, shows like Insecure. It's contending with organisations like Netflix who are churning out really well 
um, created content that speaks to these different groups at, and, and these different groups at the same time, but also many groups at, at one. I think also when you think about the increase in platforms uh, that we have as consumers before mainstream, it was defined by the fact that we all had access to similar channels, similar newspapers. And so we were being informed by the by similar spheres of influence. But now our spheres of influence are, are rapidly changing, which means what is relevant to me and what is mainstream to me versus what is mainstream to you are two different conversations. And so I think what that means for mainstream culture will, will start to really change. And the, the challenge for brands is how do you become relevant um, and still be able to talk to many groups, um, but also not um, ignore, ignore any of them. And I think to, to give you an example, if you look at even something like cinema, right, and films, when you, so Mediacom did a piece of work and they saw that actually young BAME audiences, and I hate the term BAME, but that's another podcast, um, under-index of cinema goers on like an average movie. But actually when you look at the turnout for films like Black Panther, they over-index. And when you look at the difference and the discrepancy between them under-indexing and over-indexing, they've estimated that about 50 million is being left on the table at the box office because they're not being able to engage with these different groups of audiences which typically haven't been seen Mm. as audiences to try and communicate with, audiences to try and engage with. Um, And that's the same for, as you talk about travel, you talk about beauty, you talk about even entertainment, Friday nights and things like that. Across the board, there are experiences that are not inclusive enough and in time that will almost render them not relevant because there is no one to be relevant to, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to add there is this sort of hyper-fragmenting of identity, isn't there? Just beyond, you know, this kind of cultural diversification, um, but also when it comes to issues of gender or sexuality, um, you know, so particularly among young people, they are that much more almost experimental and chameleonic with their kind of choice of self-identity. Um, and as you said, it's kind of interesting because is it the chicken and the egg? Is it because they're these proliferation of channels and groups and the digital um, space has created these niche communities so people can identify that much more freely with an array of choices? Or is it kind of being driven by that change in attitude? I find that kind of dynamic interesting. But I guess then for brands to consider how, as you say, in that, do you effectively target these hyper-specific perspectives? And perhaps that's when thing, you know, you want to root, people still want to feel that sense of belonging, and particularly, I think, in the physical um, state and feel present with others that, you know, have their beliefs and their their wants and their likes all chime with their own. So perhaps that's when we why I think we're seeing as well something that I'm seeing and I'm quite interested in is this popping up of more inclusive third spaces so beyond kind of even religious um, kind of places of worship or home life or workout places they're specifically designed as these more inclusive third spaces targeting or I guess helping people like-minded people to a very microscopic perspective band together and club together Mm. And that's a very good opportunity for brands, yeah. I think. I mean, we talk about that a lot on Stylus of how, you know, one of the good things that brands can do here without sort of stepping in and, and sort of doing a top-down approach is to is to bring these voices together and give them a platform mm. or a space 
to to amplify those those underserved or underheard voices. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about who's getting this right and who's getting this wrong. I mean, Nafisa, who do you think? What what brands can you talk about that are getting it right? Let's start with the good stuff. <laughs> um, so I think there's sort of two camps here, and I think that one is there are big brands that are out there getting it right. And but firstly, I, I want to talk about um, new media brands and new outlets. So I think. I really believe new media and new outlets are understanding and creating experiences for minorities in a way that many mainstream brands haven't been able to. And so platforms like Amalia, like Galdem, Guap Magazine, Black Ballad, who all started from a space of deeply understanding their communities. And what they're able to offer is content and moments that speak to the breadth and the spectrum of experiences rather than flavour of the month. Because... You know, when you think about it, brands are very tied to a content calendar and where it works and what month they should be talking about a certain group or not. And what that means is that their their brief is and their scope of what they can put out and how they can make an audience feel seen and included becomes very limited. And so I think that's where new media brands are really changing the game because they're centering a community. And then in terms of... Um, brands who are getting it right I'm gonna have to say Glossier because they are community first and I think what's interesting with them is they're not product-led they are community-led and that is very hard to do as a big brand it's very easy to be community-led when you're you know when you're starting out from a community level um, and also for a very distinct group but Glossier have got a way with you know it's aspirational to be in a Glossier campaign campaign as your average person who likes makeup right not many brands can say that they have that. Fenty is also another one. And I think the interesting thing with Fenty is there's this sort of idea of the person curating the experiences is as important as what's being curated. And I think we're getting to a space where because we have so many options, minority groups in particular are quite unapologetic about saying, actually, I'm not going to engage with this brand. It doesn't see me. It doesn't understand me. It doesn't represent me. And there's loads of choice. And I think that's where some brands who maybe have been riding on, you know, concepts like being a British brand are going to find themselves in in a space where actually, what does that even really mean? Because even if you look at the face of Britain, that's rapidly changing. So what does it mean to hold influence as a British brand, right? Um, if that's only rooted in you being a British brand historically and you not being a British brand who understands who Britain is today, then you're, you're going to lose relevance. So, yeah, I think Glossier, they centre their customer builder community and they've also been able to build a collective identity around lots of individual identities. So we were talking about, you know, that difficult space of, how do you give a nod to all these different communities? Actually, I, I think they do really well with consistency and not being flavour of the month and just consistently centering a community of really diverse um, people. So, yeah, to, going back to this idea of sort of, I guess, physical uh, anchors of culture, these third spaces, um, we're seeing them popping up for groups that might have uh, you know, previously been marginalised, underserved, or misrepresented. Um, so, for example, we are seeing 
um, new gender fluid gyms like Everybody and the Queer Gym for those who identify as trans or non-binary. Um, and I know opening soon, there's uh, the Work and Social Club Ethel's, which will, it's opening later this year in New York, and it's going to be sort of uh, like Albright or The Wing, but for women of colour to come together to socialise and to work. Um, so, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure, Nafisa, you were speaking about similar things um, happening for Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, so at Amalia, what we're trying to ramp up in the next 12 months is offline spaces and creating these safe spaces. Um, So one of the things we're doing next year in April is we're running a couple of retreats. um, And so one is a surfing retreat. And the idea, it came from a space where I went to a surfing retreat, which was just for women of colour. And it was this idea that actually you probably never really seen yourself in that space. You've probably never even been catered to as an experience. It's never actually felt like a safe space. Um, And it's being able to create a collective experience amongst a community. And I think the the challenge is that what makes these spaces safe or elevated isn't always codified into a checklist. And so it's not as easy for a band to say, right, we're going to do a surfing retreat, right? Um, And then that's where you kind of see that, oh, they might have missed the mark or it might have just not worked out. Um, And I think that's where it comes back to understanding inclusion as a feeling and evoking that feeling of inclusion and feeling seen as a minority group who often has has not been seen or sort of been given a nod to. Um, Sometimes it is tangible things that are checklists, but sometimes it is just the the actual space and having lots of... um, having that group occupy a space collectively that that's where the sort of power of safety comes from as well um and then there's an interesting thing around i think the evolution is instagram for example allowed loads of people to meet each other and realize that actually they're part of a collective community around say a specific identity and i think the next phase is allowing those people to then have experiences together offline and that's kind of what we're trying to do is we've built this online community and now bringing them offline and creating these these third spaces um to have those experiences and just one thing to add to that which i think is really interesting looking into the slightly further off future. Um, By 2035, we did a a body of work recently um, looking at the consumer of 2035, so 15 years ahead, uh, what might the likely realities be there and what might the um, opportunities uh, be for brands. And one thing we we kind of conceptualised, I guess, guess, is this idea of virtual safe spaces. Mm -hmm. So this... um, you know, in the future, we might see people actually using avatars, and we're already seeing this in the esports industry, aren't we? Mm. Um, so, inhabiting these digital <coughs> hangouts as a, almost a test run for their real lives, and I guess this is going to splinter identity even further because you can really com- piecemeal together a very intricate identity and try it out for a while, um, wearing alternative kind of hats, I guess, and evolving your your own self perceptions. Um, and then perhaps brand opportunity here could be marketing virtual accessories or for a more this array, this cross section of consumers, and really finding ways to allow people to fine tune and be more creative with their personalization as well. So yeah, that's just food for thought. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot to think about here, and I guess I'd like to finish sort of very quickly summing up what you think would be 
for a brand, you know, what's the call to action here? What's the thing that that brands can can start to do right now that will that will make a difference both to the people they want to speak to and to their own business? Um, what do you guys think? We are essentially on the cusp of a minority majority, uh, and it's almost this idea of multiculturalism is entering the mass market. So I do think brands really do. It's the time is now to wake up and and really tailor products, services, and communication efforts accordingly. I think one of the things that brands can do is a lot of the times the people that are looking at um, say briefs or scopes of work um, don't understand these audiences so they might not be able to understand how a finance brief or well-being brief or a fitness brief is relevant to a certain group and so I think one of the things you can do immediately is create collectives of organisations of individuals who are able to have that first look and actually find the relevancy and find the ways that you can be relevant to different audiences because you won't always see it just sort of face on. Thank you very much. Um, real food for thought there and a really interesting subject and I think clearly a lot of opportunity for, for brands to start to make a real difference um, and adapt to this interesting future. I'd like to thank my guests Nafisa Bakar and Kate Johnson and thanks to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts alongside industry thought leaders unpack the big trends that you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 